Good morning. Pastor Jerry and uh, his wife Sue are traveling today and uh, next, next Sunday. My name is John Peters. I'll be here for the next two weeks speaking uh, in his place. My wife and I have attended the bridge since the end of 2009, although most of last year uh, we lived in Ireland working with a church plant similar to the bridge just outside of Dublin. But we're back here in Eau Claire. This is our home. We're thrilled to be back uh, at the bridge. This is our church home. And I'm pleased to be here with you this morning and have the chance to walk through Scripture uh, together. If you don't have a Bible, we have a few uh, Bibles, bridge Bibles in the back. You'll want one to go through the passage that we'll be studying. So um, if we have a few guys in the back that are able to hand those out, if you don't have one, just raise your hand. And I will, uh, I'll pray to get started. We'll be taking a short break from the series that Jerry has been walking us through in the book of Genesis on the Bible's most famous dysfunctional family. And for the next two weeks, we'll look at uh, a couple passages in the book of Matthew um, leading up to Easter, uh, what we know as, as the Passion Week, what we celebrate as uh, the week that Jesus was executed, uh, tried, executed, and ultimately what we celebrate uh, in his resurrection from the grave. So for the next two weeks, we'll be in Matthew. And again, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and we can, we can get you one. But Father God, uh, thank you just for giving us the privilege to come fellowship together this morning. Thank you for the awesome privilege that we have to openly and freely read through your word, to study your word. Lord, I pray that uh, you would teach us what you would want us to learn this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, um, the applications to our lives would be specific and would be transforming. In the name of your, in the name of your Son and power of your Spirit, Amen. Image is everything. At least that was the slogan in an ad campaign used by Canon cameras about 20 years ago when they were introducing a new camera, the Canon EOS Rebel camera. And I remember this because about 10 years ago, when I was finishing seminary, my wife and I started to do some freelance photography work, photographing events and weddings to help pay for tuition. And we were just starting to invest in cameras and lenses. And the very first camera that we bought was a Canon Digital Rebel. This was the later digital version of their original 35-millimeter film camera that had come out about 10 years before that in the early 90s. A film, if you're under 25, is the funny little thing that you used to have to put into cameras to take a picture. Ancient history, I know. And so I remember getting this, this, uh, this SLR digital camera and just, I'm, I'm kind of a gadget guy, and so taking a look at all its different components and, and taking the lens off, and, and you can, these types of cameras, you can put different lenses on depending on the type of work that you're doing. And taking a look at the camera body, and we have a, a picture up here, you'll see um, the different components of the, the camera body. And noticing that in the camera body, there's this, there's this prominent mirror where the light comes off an image, it goes through the lens, it hits the mirror, it reflects off this mirror in the middle of the camera body, up through a prism, and then back out the viewfinder. And so the image that you see on the viewfinder is exactly 
what comes through the lens. And it, it, it's the exact image that you're capturing when you take a picture. And when we were buying our camera, I was, I was remembering the original Canon ad campaign. And what they did is they chose one of the most famous athletes at that time, the tennis star Andre Agassi. Now, he's long since retired, but this was back when he was winning Grand Slam tennis tournaments like the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. And he's bald now, but he used to have a long head of hair like you see up there. And... Um, and Canon, being an international company, uh, chose this tennis star because tennis is played all over the world. But also, he had this, this image as a rebel. And so it fit their campaign. He didn't, uh, he didn't dress like the other tennis stars, as you saw in that picture. He, uh, he didn't wear the white uh, tennis shirt and tennis shorts. He had these, these jean shorts and these neon reflective shirts that he would wear. And if you're between 30 and 40, you're probably having flashbacks to your middle school days. At least I am in terms of what you might have worn. But, um, but he didn't fit the, the typical mold. And, uh, and so they, they used him as their spokesman. And during their commercials, you would see him running back and forth across the court hitting different types of tennis shots, and you'd, you'd hear this distinctive sound of the camera shutter click, and they would freeze-frame this image up on the screen. And then at the end of the commercials, he would always say that tagline with as much attitude that an early 90s tennis star could muster. He would say, image is everything. And of course, it was a play on words. The, the camera took pictures, it took images, but they were also portraying this idea that, that what you bought, even something as small as a camera that you could hold in your hand, what you bought portrayed something about yourself. That it, it portrayed an image about who you were and it, it defined you in some, in some respect. And we live in an image-conscious culture today just as we did then, just as man has since the beginning. Today we're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus, not surprisingly, has something to say about image, about our image. But we'll find that it's, it's in a radically different way than any modern-day advertising campaign. It's in a radically different way. Pardon? It's in a radically different way than any advertising campaign or any way that that image is portrayed in our culture. And so if you'll turn with me to, to, uh, to Matthew 22, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. I believe it's uh, page 686 in the Bridge, Bridge Bibles. And to set the scene here, this is the week that Jesus ultimately is, is tried, executed, uh, and rises from the dead. This is the Easter week. He has come into Jerusalem with a whole host of followers and pilgrims from Nazareth to celebrate Passover. And as soon as he arrives, as soon as he comes into Jerusalem, the political and the religious orders of that day feel threatened. 
And so we pick up the story in Matthew 22, verse 15. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to Jesus, along with the Herodians. Now the Pharisees were kind of like the, the religious order in Jerusalem at that day. They had, they had some prestige, they had some, a little bit of power. And originally, several hundred years before this, originally they had got their start when the Israelites had been taken captive by uh, foreign empires, by the, the Babylonians, and also when they were under the Greek, uh, the Greek rule. And the Pharisees had started as a noble effort to try to keep the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh in the Hebrew Scriptures, pure and separate from all the other pagan influences and idolatrous uh, and idolatry that existed in these cultures. And so they started out uh, to try to keep separate, pure worship to God. That's what Pharisee means, separate one. But over the years, this, this thing that had started out as this noble effort transformed into something else. Over the years, they got away from the original Hebrew scriptures and they started to put rules on top of what the original scriptures said. And pretty soon these rules became their own traditions. And so that by the time they got to to the first century, Jesus' day, they were following the traditions as much or more than the original scriptures. And when Jesus comes in, they realize that he doesn't really care about what their traditions were, he always points back to the original scriptures. And so they feel threatened. And so they they come to him and they send their, their followers to him, along with a group known as the Herodians. The Herodians were like the political order in Jerusalem at that day. Now Israel was was under Roman rule, but the Romans, when they would when they would conquer new territories, they wouldn't always like to get involved with the nitty-gritty, day-to-day details and management of all the territories that they ruled. So oftentimes they would pick out a local, kind of like a manager. They would find and appoint some local manager and give them some sliver of power and authority just to kind of take care of the day-to-day operations so that Rome could be concerned with expanding its empire. It didn't have to be concerned with the nitty-gritty day-to-day management. And so that's what the, the Herods became. They were given some small sliver of authority by the Romans. And as long as they kept the peace, as long as the taxes kept being paid, they could maintain whatever small sliver of authority they had. But if things got out of hand, if crowds got out of hand, if Rome felt there was some threat to their power, they could come in like that and take whatever small power the the Herodians had away. And so ordinarily the Pharisees and the Herodians wouldn't be on the same side. They had opposing interests. The Pharisees resented the fact that Israel yet again was underneath 
a foreign ruler, the Romans. And they pushed back against that. And the Herodians had some loyalty to the Romans because they were given some slice of power from them to manage locally. So ordinarily, they weren't on the same team. But Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he challenges both of their interests, both of their power centers. And so they come together in this unlikely alliance to try to trap and trick him in what he says. And they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. For you are not partial to anyone. Now, we know that their original intentions aren't genuine. We know from the text that they've already, they've come to trick him, to trap him. But what they start out by saying is basically trying to get him, trying to force him to answer their upcoming question. Implying that anybody who's truthful, anybody who doesn't care about what others think, will surely answer our question. They had come to him a few days earlier, a few chapters earlier in Matthew, and they had come to him with with this question of his authority when when he had arrived in Jerusalem. And he didn't answer him at that time. He kind of he questioned their authority to question him, and and they never quite got an answer from him. And so they come to him this time, and they try to eliminate his right to remain silent, so to speak. They imply that that anybody who doesn't care what anybody else thinks, anybody who's truthful, will share with us an answer. And so in verse 17, they say, Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now what they've done here is try to paint Jesus into a corner. They've number one tried to eliminate his right to remain silent, as we think of it, try to force him to answer. And then they've tried to define his answers by either a yes or no answer. They've tried to put him in this no-win situation between a rock and a hard place. And they figure that they've got him. Because if he answers yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, they think, he'll lose his appeal with all the Jewish pilgrims and followers that have followed him up till this point. They think that he'll lose what they think is a folk hero status. That all these people that have been following Jesus, thinking that he might be the king to come, all these people that resent that they're under the Roman rule, and that have followed Jesus and talked about a king in a a coming kingdom, that if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, that they'll see him as a phony, and they'll abandon him. But then if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, 
They'll think, well, the Romans will come themselves and arrest him for treason, for insurrection. And so they, they think that, that no matter what he answers, yes or no, they've got him trapped. And so verse 18, Jesus, perceiving their malice, said to them, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Each of the Caesars would mint their own coins when they were in power. And during the time of of uh, Jesus here, about 30 A.D., the Caesar was Tiberius. Okay, Tiberius was the, the adopted son of Caesar Augustus, who was in charge when Jesus was born. And he was the adopted grandson of Julius Caesar, the famous Roman general. And so all the Roman uh, Caesars, all the Roman emperors, would mint their own coins. It was kind of like political propaganda when they were in charge. Tiberius reigned for 23 years from 14 to 37 AD. And during this time, about 30 AD, there was one coin that was in, uh, one main, main coin that he minted that was in circulation, shown above. There's thousands of these that are still, um, still, have, still have been preserved today. And on the coin, on the one side, you see the image of Tiberius to the left there. And the inscription says in Latin, kind of in, sh- in shorthand Latin, it says Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Okay, so basically, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. At this point, the Roman emperors took on this, this persona of a deity. And on the other side, you have one image in another inscription. The inscription is, is uh, Pontiff Maxim. It, it's roughly translated high priest. And the, the inscription there is of, of the Roman god of peace, Pax. And so you, can you see this image here? Jesus says, show me the coin. Whose image and inscription on this is on this? And you have the one true Son of God, who the Bible also describes as the Prince of Peace, who's also described as our High Priest. And he's holding up this coin of this Roman emperor that says the same thing about somebody else. I happen to think that our God has an incredible sense of humor and dramatic irony. But do you catch that image? Whose likeness or 
That Greek word is also translated image. Whose likeness or image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then he said, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Give to Caesar the tax that is due. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the coin that has his image on it. Okay? Give to God the things that are God, God's. And what's the parallel implication? The things that have God's image on them. Well, what has God's image on it? And the Pharisees, they knew. They knew at this time. They did. We do. All human beings do. And hearing this, They were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Give to Caesar your tax. Give to God your life. You see, even though even though the Pharisees had gotten away from the original Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus here is pointing them back to Genesis, to the original creation of man. Even their own tradition had some sliver of truth that they could have recognized. There's a passage from uh, some, of the, uh, some of the Jewish tradition here in the Mishnah, and it, it talks about this same idea. It says, For a person mints many coins with a single seal. Talking about Caesars and other rulers. And they're all alike, one another. But the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be he, minted all human beings with that seal of his, with which he made the first person, Adam. Yet not one of them is alike anyone else. And so Jesus points them back, even through their own tradition, he points them back to the creation of man, to God's creation of man in Genesis. And in Genesis 1.27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So just as these, these Roman Caesars had, had minted and stamped coins with their own image on it, at the creation of man, God himself, the creator God, stamped all of humanity with his image. And at that time before sin, we perfectly reflected God, God's glory. Now the, the idea of, of the image of God and, and uh, what, that, what that means is an extensive topic. And I can't pretend to, uh, to exhaustively cover that this morning. 
But there's a couple, there's a couple key components that I'd like to talk about. And the first picture that, that I think of when thinking about what it means to be made in God's image, what it means to reflect God's image, is back to that camera that I was talking about, and specifically that mirror in the camera. And just as light comes through a camera lens and reflects off the mirror in the camera body and then goes back out through the viewfinder, so we were made and designed to reflect the one who made and designed us. And so, just as a mirror holds an image, we too were made to hold the image in the glory of the one who created us. The Apostle Paul uses the same, uh, the same picture in 2 Corinthians. And he talks about, uh, in contrast to, to Moses, who, who in Exodus had gone up and, and uh, been in the presence of God, and, and when he came back down, his face would shine that he would have to put a veil on. In contrast to that, he says, we, who have come after Jesus, and who have the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he says, we with an unveiled face, behold as a mirror the glory of God, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And so he's talking about the the presence of the Holy Spirit that that we can have through a life-changing encounter with the true Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so even though we we were made and designed originally to reflect God's glory, and at one point man did that, but the problem was that sin entered the world. And just like with a camera, if you drop a camera, if you drop it or if somebody steps on it or, or something else happens to that camera, the mirror in that camera can break, it can chip, it can get dirtied. And it no longer reflects a true image. The light gets, gets refracted in different ways that it was never intended to. And so when when sin entered the world with us, this image that we were reflecting of God was marred and it was dirtied and it was broken and it was chipped. But the good news is, is that God sent someone, God sent Jesus, who was a true and accurate reflection of God he was the Son of God. He lived the sinless life that we could not live. He, he could represent God to us because he was truly God. He could represent us to God because he was also truly man at the same time. And God sent him. And even though our sin was our fault. And even though there was a price to be paid, it was kind of like if you dropped a camera 
And you broke the mirror in that camera because of your own fault. And you can send it back into Canon. They do have a repair, a repair division. You can send it back into Canon, but it's going to be expensive. You'll send it back in and you'll get a bill when they take that broken mirror out and put a new one in. But Jesus, in contrast to that, Jesus, when he came and paid the penalty for our sin, said, put that bill on my account. And he paid the price for us that we could not pay. Through his death, through his resurrection from the grave, what we'll celebrate in a couple weeks is as Easter. And so we get back through nothing of our own accord. We get back a mirror that again reflects God's glory back to him, back to others. And so Day by day as we walk and follow Jesus Christ that, that, uh, that we reflect more and more that we're being transformed into the same image uh, as Jesus is what the, the writer of Hebrew or Paul, the, uh, the writer of Romans, describes it as. We are being conformed and transformed into his image. And this idea of the image of God has a number of specific applications. And the first one is, everybody reflects something. Whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, everybody reflects something. And you have a choice. It can be a world right now that's not as it should be with injustice, that's broken, that doesn't work as it should, with people who don't treat each other as they should. Or you, or you can reflect the one true creator God who designed us originally to reflect him perfectly and who sent his son Jesus Christ to give us the perfect model who died on our behalf who rose on the grave and through faith in him who paid our penalty we can reflect God and his glory again. So the first application is everybody reflects something and if you haven't made that decision if you haven't had that life-changing encounter with the Son of God, the true Son of God, I pray that this morning you would. And the acknowledgement of, of how we're broken, how sin has broken us and, dis- and taken that reflection of God and marred it, but how that he sent his Son. And through faith in Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, that we one day again can perfectly reflect the God who made and designed us. 
The, sep- the second application is that everybody has dignity and worth. That people independent of utility, independent of function, independent of what they do, are designed in the image of God. And this has had incredible incredible application for the church of Jesus Christ all throughout the centuries. The church that started the first hospitals, the churches that uh, first took care of the disabled, the infirm, the elderly. That people, even if they couldn't work, people had inherent value because they were created by God, created in his image. And so, on the back of your, your notes, I don't have a traditional outline. But I want you to think of somebody specific in your life, who you encounter, who you know, that might be on the margins of society, who's, who's uh, often forgotten about because they're not... They're not active in the way that we typically think of people interacting. It could be somebody who's elderly, who's physically or mentally handicapped. Somebody that's, that's often forgotten about. And Jesus says, they are made in the image of God as much as we are made in the image of God. And I want you to write, write down a name. I want you to write down a specific name of somebody who's in your life, who's in your sphere of influence that you can impact with the glory of God. You see, because until the the application becomes specific, it doesn't become dynamic. But as long as it's, it's general, we often don't do anything about it. And then finally, being made in the image of God means that whatever he has designed you to do, whether it's as a nurse or a teacher or a construction worker, that he's designed you with gifts and talents and tools to reflect his glory. Paul talks about in Colossians that whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. And so in your everyday life and work, whether it's with a boss who you should stop talking about behind his back, whether it's with an employee who you should start treating in a different manner, or a coworker. We all have specific interactions every day in our own careers, in our own day-to-day life that can reflect the glory of God just by doing those as if we were doing those for the Lord, not just a paycheck.
Everybody reflects something. And what you choose to reflect can make all the difference. Image is everything. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for just the lesson that you've, uh, that you've given us through your gospel, um, through the example of your son. Lord, through the true son of God, the true prince of peace, our true high priest, who encountered a culture at that time who, uh, uh, who didn't reflect you. And Lord, I pray that in our day and time, Lord, that we make that choice, Lord, that we place our faith in your son through his death, through his resurrection. Lord, that we too can reflect your glory. Lord, I thank you for the fellowship of this church. And uh, I pray that uh, as we go out this week, that you will make um, these names, these, uh, this application that we've written down, that that will impact our, our week. And Lord, that we, w- we will be able to shine your grace and glory to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.